And so will you take your Bible, please, and turn with me to John chapter 15. So yesterday while driving home with Abby, after her return from camp, I, <laughs> I just kind of gently began asking some questions about the experience. I've, I've learned from my days as a youth pastor and now as a parent that, uh, that the, it can sometimes take a couple of days or more to just unwind from camp. And I didn't want to press too hard too quickly. But I could tell that God had, had, uh, had made an impact uh, upon my daughter and upon the others as well as I was here to meet them when they returned. And I, and I uh, just wanted to know a little bit more about how he was impressing upon each of their hearts the great blessing of a relationship with Christ. And so I asked if there was a theme verse or passage for the week. And as Andre just said, to my pleasant surprise, it was John 15 verses 1 through 17, and no one knew that ahead of time. Now, that is a really cool thing, because you know that, if, that we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and we've spent the last three Sundays here at church going through John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. So what, what a cool thing that our Wildwood campers were learning and even memorizing that passage, even while we here at church were doing the same. If you've been with us, you know by now that this passage, John 15, 1 through 17, is one of the most beautiful, most descriptive, most encouraging passages in the entire Gospel of John, indeed in the entire New Testament. For in this passage, uh, Jesus likens a relationship with Him to that between a vine and its branches, assuring his disciples and now us uh, of abundant life in his name, a life of fruitfulness and fullness of joy. And as we've said a few times now, uh, we just say again that because Jesus is the true vine, all who abide in him have all they need in all circumstances, to be and to bear all that God has purposed for them now and forevermore. What great, great news this is. But the Christian life was never meant to be lived in the Christian bubble. Real life in Christ, this life that he describes in those first 17 verses, is realized, plays itself out while living in the real world. A world that doesn't always accept Christ or the things of Christ. Always honest, here Jesus presents both the blessings and some of the burdens of Christian disciples. So what happens, campers? Wildwooders? 
What happens when you return from Hume to re-enter the real world? And what happens, church, when we move from the promise of fruitfulness and fulfillment in Christ to the reality of Christian persecution, which we will do in these coming verses. One cannot help but notice the stark contrast as the text moves from words of love in the first half of the chapter to those of hate. That is, the general hatred of the world toward Jesus and those who follow Jesus. How kind of the Lord to warn us and prepare us for opposition. For by grace He chose us out of the world. By grace, He leaves us in the world to graciously overcome the world in His name. I want to read it together with you. John 15. And now we're at 18 through 25. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that No one else did. They would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word and that you still speak even today. And today, we want and we need to hear your voice. To that end, will you please help me to decrease that you may increase. Help us, all of us, to see and hear the wonder and beauty of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for the... Thank you for being honest with us, for speaking those things to us that we not only like to hear, but also those things we sometimes don't. Thank you for 
revealing to us the unsightly areas of our lives, for convicting us in this way, those areas that are hurtful and harmful and wrong and sinful that need to change. Thank you for revealing to us the unsightly things in our world that are wrong, hurtful, harmful, that need to change. These things that that come from a place really of hate. Hatred for what is good and right and honorable and just. Essentially hatred for all that is God. The things of God. And we know that sometimes, according to your word, we know that sometimes that hatred is directed directly at God and the Son of God and all who follow God. And so will you please come in and minister to us this morning in this regard? Will you equip us? Will you encourage us? Will you strengthen our faith and resolve and deepen our love? We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. I see this in two parts, these verses. Verses 18 through 21 speak to the presence of Christian persecution, while verses 22 through 25 explain why, which is the presence of sin and our sinful refusal of Christ. And so the passage begins with this sobering statement. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it has hated me, before it hated you. And so Jesus assures, comforts, and cares for his disciples by explaining that whatever opposition they face as Christians is because of him and their relation to him, and he has faced it first. History is little, littered, history is littered with consistent hostility toward Christianity. The world hated Christ, hated Christ's apostles, hated the early Christians, hated Christians down through the years, and hates Christians today. Listen, our generation is yet another link in the long lineage of Christian persecution. And this hatred comes in the form of intolerance, indifference, marginalization, violence, threats of violence, and even murder. We mustn't put our heads in the sand and pretend that such opposition doesn't exist. It does. It exists worldwide, even today, and even here in our own country. And Jesus wants us to know why. The world hates you because you're not one of them. If you were of the world, Jesus states in verse 19, the world would love you 
as its own, but because you're not of the world. I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, you once ran with the world and you followed its fatal course. You were estranged from God, opposed to God before Jesus so mercifully chose you and saved you to himself. You once walked in the way that that leads to death, but now by grace you walk uh, in the way of life in Christ. Do you realize, do you know that the first Christians weren't called Christians? They were called followers of the way. And they were opposed at nearly every turn. And by the time, by the time they, they became known as Christians, which was a pejorative term at first, the persecution was widespread, but so obvious was their loyalty to Jesus. They were characterized by a way of life that ran counter to the way of the world. And we just have to ask ourselves, is it not true that we're facing similar opposition today? Even in our own country. Now listen. I know, I know this, this, may, this may bother some of you. And I, that's not my intent. Listen, I don't believe, I don't believe we were ever a decidedly Christian nation. meaning a nation of people who lived for Christ. But I do believe we were founded upon basic Christian principles. But collectively and culturally, belief in those principles has eroded so that we're essentially living in a post-Christian era. Whatever Christian ideals once wove the fabric of our society are no longer considered ideal by the culture at large. As uh, someone remarked on Facebook recently, even common sense isn't common anymore. The basic values we commonly held dear are now seemingly up for continual discussion. The removal of the Ten Commandments from our courtrooms is an example of this. The, the, the resistance to prayer in our classrooms is an example of this. The rising tide of the sexual revolution is an example of this. Senate Bill 1146 is an example of this. You see, the world is ever suspect of nonconformity. The Bible says, do not be conformed to this world. The world is ever suspect of nonconformity. You're not one of us. You're not one of us. Always suspect. The world singles out those who go against the flow. The world labels and pigeonholes such people as intolerant and bigoted 
We must know, we just must state it, your allegiance to Christ puts you in the crosshairs of a world that killed Christ. Now, shall we hang our heads in defeat? Or raise our fists in defiance? No. Because history teaches that the gospel of Jesus Christ has flourished in the face of great opposition. Glory to God. Look at the fruitful ministry of the church through the centuries, beginning with the very first. The greater the opposition, the further the gospel spread. Historically, when the church has been challenged and marginalized, it has ministered from the margins with great effect. Conversely, please hear this. Whenever the church has held the ruling center, it has been far more susceptible to apathy, to heresy, to apostasy. Because to the degree we think we need the seat of power, we neglect our need of Christ. So there is great hope. There is great hope. There is great hope for the church today and for those in the church as long as we value Christ more than a vague return to some thin veneer of cultural Christianity. The world hates you because you're not one of them, for you belong to to Christ and you bear his name. And he says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. All these things they will do on account of my name. It's verse 21. Because they do not know him who sent me. And here Jesus is teaching that worldly opposition to Christ results from willful ignorance of God. Now, people may speak of God. Hear this. People may speak of God. Goodbye, you guys. It's great seeing you this morning. Love you guys. Yeah. All right. All right. Now, come on now. Listen. Jesus sees, says that the worldly opposition to Christ results from willful ignorance of God. And so people may speak of God, right? And they do. People may speak of God. but generally not the God of the Bible. Because they, they want a God of their own making, one they can control instead of the God who is in control. Deep down, therefore, 
the world opposes God, the Son of God, and all who align with God. Like oil and water, it's impossible to love God and the world at the same time. So, I think there's a lesson for us here. It's such a slippery slope when Christian believers try to fit in with the world in the attempt to win its favor. Or when Christian churches cater to worldly principles and preferences. In making our appeal to the world, and we should, right? We should appeal. I mean, isn't, isn't this the idea of being a minister of reconciliation? God is making his appeal through us. But in making our appeal to the world, we must never seek its approval. Because fundamentally, the world does not approve of God. It's not approve of the Son of God. It's not approve of Christianity. Rather than showing how much like the world we are, wouldn't it be much better and far more helpful to show just how distinct we are? You are the salt of the earth, Jesus once said. But if salt loses its taste, that is, its distinctive quality, if salt loses its distinctive quality, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That's why we preach Christ and Him crucified. That's why we all need to preach Christ and Him crucified. Listen, not just the niceties of Jesus to merely enhance your life, but the tragedy and necessity of His death also. We must make known the reality of sin and our need of the Savior because in this and in this alone there is great hope for the world. We must model our newness in Christ. We must model it, people. We must model our newness in Christ, this divine transformation that God has made and is still making in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. We must minister in the name of Christ because there is power in that name. And if we are insulted for that name, and we will be, so be it. Debbie's stealing my verse here. <laughs> for when insulted for Christ's sake, rejoice. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So verses 18 through 21 address the presence of Christian persecution while the verses that follow identify the root cause and this is where, we, where maybe it gets a little bit more personal and we each, we each need to just take a close look as best we can at our own lives and our, our own hearts, our own situation. But, 
So, so 18 through 21 address the presence of Christian persecution. And the verses that follow identify the root cause, which is the presence of sin and our sinful refusal to repent. How a person responds to his or her sin speaks volumes about the condition of their heart and the well-being of their soul. I want you to remember Cain and Abel. Both brought an offering to the Lord, but Cain's was deemed unacceptable, presumably because he gave from his leftovers, whereas Abel gave the first fruits. And Cain grew angry. But the Lord graciously gave him opportunity to repent and do right. God even warned Cain that his sin was destroying him, crouching at his door, looking to overtake him. But Cain would not listen, so overcome with jealousy toward his brother and so hard of heart toward his own sin, Cain murdered Abel, was held accountable by God. Right? There was a little reckoning conversation to be had. And then we're told, this is so sad, so tragic, that Cain then left the presence of the Lord. Here's another example. The story is told of a missionary in Africa who was visited by the wife of an African chief. And the missionary had a mirror on on a tree outside his home. And the woman had never seen a mirror. So when glancing into it for the first time, she was appalled by what she saw. For the first time in her life, she saw herself as she really was. Features that had been hardened by her pagan lifestyle and face paintings and piercings that only exacerbated the disfigurement. Who is that horrible looking person inside that tree? She said in terror to which the missionary gently replied, it's not in the tree. The glass is simply reflecting your own face. And she could not believe it until he took the mirror down for her and she held it in her hand and then she demanded to buy it. Although the missionary said it wasn't for sale, she pressed further and further and harder and harder and then finally wanting to avoid avoid trouble or cause a scene, the missionary agreed on a price. And after paying the said price, the woman took the mirror And threw it down on the ground and said, I will never have it making faces at me again. As they both watched it shatter in pieces. And the story illustrates how some people respond to their own sin. We need to understand that conviction of sin is a good thing an act of God's love and mercy, an opportunity to see ourselves as we really are and to repent. 
But sadly, rather than seize this opportunity, many choose to ignore it or deny their need of it. We'd rather blame shift by faulting our surroundings or other people or even God himself. Verse, uh, Jesus refers to this in verses 22 and, and again in verse 24, how, to how people responded to his words and his works that exposed their guilt. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And again, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. It's not that we were sinless before Christ came. It's that Christ brought sin to light as never before. Graciously so. And yet instead of repenting, by and large, the world responds with hatred. Instead of thanking God for the opportunity to turn from our sinful ways, we turn from His grace and truth. Instead of embracing Jesus who came to seek and save the lost, we harbor hatred for Him and for the Father who sent Him hating him who exposes sin rather than hating sin itself. I want you to think about this. Realize that Jesus never once spoke an ill-timed word or a word with hurtful intent, malicious intent. Never, not one time. He never did anything wrong to anyone. All the time, all the time, his desire was for the good of people. To the glory of God. Even by earthly accounts, he was humble. Courageous, helpful, inspirational, and caring. Even by earthly accounts, his life was utterly unique and his death was world-changing. Even by earthly accounts, even by earthly accounts, he is among the greatest people to have ever lived or died. Yet this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness. Rather than the light. Because their works were evil. Jesus came to us in love to enlighten our lives. To give us life speaking the words of God and doing the works of God and both his words and his works reveal our spiritual bankruptcy and God's abundant supply. But like the African woman, we'd rather destroy the mirror than change its reflection. And like Cain, we're held accountable and without excuse. For unless we trust Christ, according to verse 25, 
we hate him without cause. And Jesus here in this verse quotes two psalms, Psalm 35, 19 and Psalm 69, 4. And what's significant about this is that both psalms express God's judgment upon the world for its hatred of Christ and, and his people. Hear this, to judge Jesus unjustly is to bring just judgment upon yourself. James Montgomery Boyce asks, What will God do in the face of that situation? Will he ignore the injustice? Can he ignore it? No, he cannot. Rather, he will move against those who have hated or ignored his son and judge them. And he will receive with honor those who have taken their place alongside Jesus and who in quiet faith and determination have borne the world's ridicule with him. And so the question before us all this morning is a simple one. Whose side are you on? Do you love Christ or prefer the world? The Bible says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Rather than ignore or deny your need of Christ, will you not embrace him instead? And assuming you do, I trust that most of you do, What then should be our Christian response to a world filled with opposition and hate? We who are in the world but not of it, how might we move forward with faith and hope and love? And in closing, I just have three suggestions. Number one, don't panic. Don't panic. I want you to notice how matter-of-fact Jesus is about all this. He's not frazzled, alarmed, or even worried. And in the verses that close the chapter, which we'll consider next week, he promises help by way of the Holy Spirit. And then in the next chapter, he promises peace and joy, even in tribulation. And then in chapter 17, he specifically prays, catch this, that God would not remove us from the world, but rather keep us from the evil one while in the world. Now is not the time for chicken little Christianity. The sky is not falling. Yes, the landscape has changed and is changing. Alarmism is not the answer. We mustn't support or propagate the false narrative that Christianity is collapsing. It is not. Every credible study reports that it is not. It's simply being redefined, hear this, redefined for the better as cultural Christians. Those who simply identified with Christianity because it was the cultural thing to do are no longer doing so. They're shedding the label that never really applied to them anyway. So let's not panic. 
Listen, be assured, Jesus Christ still storms the gates of hell and he will build his church. Number two. This is going to ruffle some feathers, maybe. Contend for truth without being contentious. I wonder if we have some contentious people in this room. So important for the Christian community to be peacemakers, not rabble rousers. Now, of course, of course, of course, we must stand for truth. But let's not be contentious when taking our stance, argumentative, combative, violent, hostile, controversial, slanderous. Let's not lob grenades from behind our Christian bunkers. Jesus said to those of the world, come unto me and you'll find rest for your souls. And he said this while he went out to them on their turf to understand them, then to invite them to himself. But far too often, it's my observation that rather than initiating meaningful contact with the world, we communicate a stay away from me message that only deepens the divide. And it seems we are always on guard and unapproachable and therefore unwilling to take the necessary steps to hear and be heard, to understand and be understood. Whatever the issue, gender identity, racism, gay marriage, family values, etc., we should set the pace in initiating thoughtful dialogue and inviting personal response. And so contend for truth, absolutely contend for truth, but don't be contentious. Number three, seize the opportunity. What an opportune time we live, in which we live. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, let's just take this, let's break this down briefly. Look carefully how you walk. That's caution. Not as unwise, but as wise. That's wisdom. Making the best use of the time, that's opportunity. Because the days are evil. That's opposition. And so if we put it all back together and take it as one cohesive thought, we're told we're told to exercise caution and wisdom 
not to avoid opposition. We're not exercising caution and wisdom to avoid opposition. Caution and wisdom to seize every God-given opportunity in the face of opposition. That's why mission and remembering the mission is so important. And our mission in this world is to love God with everything we have and are and to love people in His name even when they don't love us in return. And so we mustn't let fear over what the world is doing stifle faith in what God is doing, God still reigns. Nothing in this world can thwart His sovereign and saving purposes, and rather than remove Himself from opposition, He entered the fray. God sent His Son into a world of hate to rescue and reconcile haters, and I was one of them. And Jesus sends us into the same world. Jesus sends us and us and us into the same world to do the same. And so with caution and wisdom, seize whatever opportunities God gives you, even when facing great opposition. Don't panic. Contend without being contentious and seize the opportunity. Jesus has been honest with us, presenting both the blessings and the burdens of Christian discipleship. But by His grace alone, He's chosen us out of the world. And by grace, He leaves us in the world that we might graciously overcome the world in His name. Amen. Father, we thank you again for this time together. Will you just continue to impress your word upon each of our hearts and make us to be faithful, obedient, responsive to your, to your word and to your will in our lives. We ask this through Christ. Amen.